Hi, this is Tawny from the Dirty Bits Podcast, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting and a fully integrated WordPress website. So, if you already have a show, or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up, and the first month is on me. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, You've got no more excuses. And now, on to the show. Like many of my previous episodes, I must provide you with this warning. This episode contains very, very explicit details of sexual violence towards very young children, topics involving child sexual abuse, images of child abuse, graphic sexual content, and violence and cruelty towards animals, and is not intended for all audiences. It is not suitable for young children, and it is not suitable for work. Listener discretion is advised. And I will tell you this. Don't be so quick to believe everything you hear. Dreamers, I'm going to talk to you about a subject I seriously don't like talking about. But it involves an aspect of a very fascinating case. Well... I should say it involves it, but it doesn't involve it. And you'll understand what I'm talking about by the time we're finished. I wanted to talk to you about satanic panic, but in order to talk about satanic panic, we have to talk about satanic ritual abuse. So satanic ritual abuse involves the physical and sexual abuse of people for purposes of occult or satanic type rituals and in a more extreme system of satanic ritual abuse involves a widespread worldwide network of people often including very wealthy very powerful elite individuals who participate in the abduction of children for purposes of procreation sacrifices and producing explicit materials and other dealings involving the sex trade Satanic ritual abuse became a catalyst for a moral panic that swept the United States in the 1980s and began to spread to many parts of the world in the late 1990s, but it did have its origins in the 70s. Investigations into satanic ritual abuse conducted by sociologists and anthropologists found that there was little evidence, practically no evidence, that these kinds of things were actually occurring that most of the allegations of ritualistic abuse were the results of rumors spread by the media, Christian fundamentalists, mental health professionals, law enforcement, and child abuse advocates. 
Personally, I don't know how prevalent these types of activities actually are. I have heard the rumors that have surrounded some child abductions, and I honestly just don't know what to think. It seems like it would be really difficult to keep something so big that secretive for so long. A worldwide network of satanic ritual abuse perpetrated against abducted children? But I just don't know. I can't say that I've read or seen anything that has specifically proven something like this is actually going on, or some kind of ring has been busted performing these rituals. But it's not really relevant for the story, because today, we're going to focus a bit more on the panic that the United States became consumed with during the 1980s over satanic rituals, commonly referred to as satanic panic. It has been said that when Mike Warnke published The Satanic Cellar in 1972, it played a big role in laying the foundation of satanic panic. And Warnke became known as an authority on Satanism by the mainstream media until he and his story were exposed as frauds in 1992. But some weren't deterred in what they long believed to be true, particularly fundamentalist Christians. In the late 1970s, John Todd briefly became the newest expert on Satanism as a speaker who presented at fundamentalist churches making claims that witches, druids, and the Illuminati controlled politics, the media, and most churches around the world. But he turned out to be exposed as a fraud as well. However, there was always a certain level of support for him and his claims, regardless. Satanic Panic was back in full swing again with the 1980 book Michelle Remembers by Michelle Smith, which was supposedly her personal memoir of satanic ritual abuse. But she too was eventually exposed as a fraud as well, when it was discovered that none of what she claimed actually happened to her. Then there were other rumors and claims that were spread through the 80s. Things like satanic messages were being hidden in music if you played it backwards, satanic messages in rock music, games like Dungeons and Dragons were satanic, and that heavy metal music was used as a tool for recruiting people in the occult. Pets disappearing, candy being poisoned on Halloween. That these occurrences were a part of the big satanic conspiracy. And of course, there's the underground activities that Satanists participate in. Human sacrificing, and I hate the way that this is described, but the breeding of children to be used for sacrifice, ritualistic child abuse, and sexual abuse of children. The panic really began to spread when law enforcement began taking some pretty wild accusations made by the fundamentalist Christians at face value. And then they began linking these accusations to their investigations of occult activity. They would assume that these activities were often committed by teens or groups of teens who were a larger part of a satanic ritual conspiracy. The West Memphis Three could be seen as an example of this. And then these seemingly innocuous teen goings-on are looked at as the gateway activities to more serious crimes like kidnapping, rape, and murder. 
And the more and more law enforcement started talking about satanic rituals being linked to crimes, the media took that and ran with it. So with law enforcement telling people a crime had all the earmarks of occult activity, it gave the whole concept legitimacy. And before you knew it, there were books, articles, TV shows, spreading the panic across the country. Looking at satanic activity as being an aspect or a motivation of a crime became a standard part of police investigations. And that is precisely what occurred in Southern California in the community of Manhattan Beach in 1983. And it all started with one parent, one child, one accusation. In today's 45th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the McMartin Preschool. Dreamers, I'm going to put this out there for you all right now. None of what I'm going to talk to you about would have ever happened if not for one woman and one woman alone. A mother living in the affluent Oceanside community of Manhattan Beach, California. Judy Johnson. And I will talk much, much more about her as we go along. In mid-1983, Judy was going through a tumultuous divorce from her estranged husband. She was in need of daycare for her two-year-old son, so she looked up the McMartin Preschool. She called them, but she was told there were no spots open. So, what does she do? Well, if you thought, look up a different preschool, you'd be wrong. She took her son to the preschool anyway, and she kind of sort of just nonchalantly dropped him off in the yard and quietly slipped away. Okay, kind of wacky, right? Well, lucky for her, they didn't call the cops or report her for child abandonment. I was a preschool teacher for 10 years, and this seriously happened to me once. I had a child that was not being picked up at the end of the day. It was like 6 p.m., 6.05 p.m., 6.10 p.m., and so on. No mom, no dad. And they're divorced, right? So I'm calling, and dad's like, well, it's her weekend. And mom's like, no, it's his weekend. And I'm like... It's going to be Child Protective Services weekend if somebody doesn't get down here and pick this kid up because I'm about to report somebody for child abandonment. Needless to say, I can't remember who exactly showed up, but one of them broke down and picked the kid up. So yeah, Judy Johnson is lucky because the preschool figured something out and enrolled her son into their program. Sometime in August, her son complained about having painful bowel movements. He was two, so I doubt he used that exact terminology, but he, in some way, a way that a two-year-old would put it, something like perhaps he's got owies on his bottom, something to that effect maybe. She took a look at him and assessed that he seemed to be okay, so she went ahead and dropped him off at the preschool. Later on that day when she picked her son back up and went home, she gave him another look over 
and she noticed some redness and blotches on his skin. And this led her to suddenly believe that something nefarious happened at the school that day. She questioned her son about it, and he told her nothing happened to him at the school. It seems that Judy kept quizzing her son, though, with leading types of questions. And after a while, he began telling her that his teacher, Mr. Ray, Ray Bucky, had taken his temperature. Ray Bucky is the grandson of the founder of the McMartin Preschool, Virginia McMartin, and he is the son of the school's administrator, Peggy McMartin Bucky. Judy took her son to the hospital, and then she went to the police. She filed a criminal complaint, accusing not only Ray Bucky, but she would also accuse her estranged husband of sodomizing her son as well. Two doctors who looked at the boy came to the conclusion that they agreed with her, that something untoward had happened. The Manhattan Beach Police contacted five other families who had children enrolled at the McMartin Preschool later on in the month of August. They told the parents that they were looking into some improper conduct at the school and asked the parents if they were aware of anything going on with their children. Of course, one of those parents contacted by police was alarmed. She called up the school and asked Ray's mom, Peggy, who had answered the phone, what in the world were police talking about? Peggy was stunned by the call. She dropped the phone and screamed for her son. Ray was arrested September 7, 1983, and the very next day, a form letter was sent out to 200 current and former McMartin preschool families. This letter read, September 8, 1983. Dear Parent, this department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. Ray Bucky, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, was arrested September 7, 1983, by this department. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children, as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary for a complete investigation. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student at the preschool. We are asking your assistance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttocks or chest area, and sodomy possibly committed under the pretense of taking the child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of the children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child is important. Please complete the enclosed information form and return it to this department in the enclosed stamped return envelope as soon as possible. We will contact you if circumstances dictate the same. We ask you to please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family. Do not contact or discuss the investigation with Raymond Bucky or any member of the accused defendant's family 
or employees connected with the McMartin Preschool. And as you can imagine, panic ensued. The responses to the letters were overwhelming. The Los Angeles District Attorney's Office ended up referring approximately 400 children who had been in attendance at the McMartin Preschool to a local diagnostic and therapy center called the Children's Institute International. And you guys remember this place because it is going to play a huge role throughout the duration of this episode. Over the next four months, the staff, headed by a therapist by the name of Key McFarlane, interviewed the children whose parents responded to the letters that something, in fact, did happen to their child at the school. And remember the name Key McFarlane as well. These interviews were videotaped. And by the way, Kay McFarlane was an unlicensed social worker at the time the interviews were being conducted under her charge. In the end, after more than 400 interviews, 360 of the parents were informed that their children did confirm that they were sexually molested in some way, shape, or form, including instances of sodomy, oral copulation, nude photography, and games that had code names like Horsey or Naked Movie Star. And subsequent to those interview sessions Key McFarlane had with the children confirming these reports of abuse, along with the doctors who said that they found evidence as such, the district attorney summoned 18 former McMartin Preschool students to testify before a grand jury to describe exactly what happened to them. On March 22, 1984, the grand jury came back with an indictment that included 115 counts of child abuse against Ray Bucky, teachers Marianne Jackson, Betty Rader, and Babette Spittler. Also indicted were Ray's sister Peggy Ann, their mother Peggy McMartin Bucky, and the matriarch of the family, their grandmother, Virginia McMartin, who was 76 years old at the time. Later, more charges would be levied, bringing the total counts to a whopping 321 charges involving 48 children. This, the longest preliminary hearing in both state and nationwide history, would follow. Spread over 19 months across 1984, 1985, and 1986. But the prosecutor, Leo Rubin, was making false statements to the media, claiming that the defendants were charged with committing almost 400 sexual crimes, way more than the actual indictment was. And she also said that there were at least 30 people associated with the school who were being investigated, which wasn't true either. So between November of 1983 and March of 1984, those 360 former McMartin Preschool students were diagnosed by Children's Institute International as having been abused. With the parents' reaction to that letter that was sent out, rumors were being spread everywhere, and the reputations of schools and those who ran them were besmirched. Kay McFarlane had given the parents some advice. Drive your kids around the city, to tell them to look for other people who also perpetrated the sexual abuse. 
Can you believe that nonsense? So a parent by the name of Bob Curie was one of the most outspoken of said parents. He sort of officially became an unofficial investigator in the sexual abuse case. And he was absolutely certain that the employees and the administrators at the McMartin Preschool were active participants in satanic rituals. He vigorously encouraged other parents whose children said that they were not molested to go ahead and take their kids to Children's Institute International by telling them that their kids had been identified as victims by other children in their interviews. I will talk to you more about Bob Curie a little bit later, but you need to remember his name as well. The reputation of the McMartin Preschool was obliterated by the rumors and conjecture going around the town about the satanic sexual abuse occurring at the school, causing enrollment to take a nosedive. After 28 years of serving the children in the community of Manhattan Beach, on January 13, 1984, Virginia McMartin and Peggy Bucky shuttered the doors of the preschool forever. Police served search warrants at the preschool, as well as at the homes of each of the defendants, which produced exactly zero evidence, nothing incriminating against any of them. There were no naked pictures of the children found in the school or at their homes, despite the fact that parents and investigators maintained photographing the children in the nude was a routine part of the school's practices. Remember, this is 1983 when these charges were first brought about. There wasn't digital photography, so this would either have to be film or Polaroid pictures. And the film pictures, of course, typically had to be taken someplace to be developed, so you couldn't exactly take these over to the nearby photo mat and have them developed without having been found out. If anything inappropriate was being processed, it would hopefully be reported to authorities. So I'd have to say it would have been most likely Polaroids, which is kind of making a comeback, so... If you're not old enough to remember them originally from back in the day, then you should know them by now. Take your picture. It's ejected from the camera. You shake it around a little bit, and voila, instant picture. So none of this stuff was found. More than four dozen kids, more than 300 allegations of abuse, and not one single picture anywhere. The charges that were being brought against the defendants were packaged into one big, huge conspiracy. The defendants were Satanists who utilized the preschool as a headquarters for a massive sexual, pornographic, and prostitution empire that worked to produce millions of images of child sex abuse. The children were drugged and forced to be a part of satanic rituals, sex games not only with teachers, but other strangers, on both on- and off-campus locations. And it was during these satanic ritual events that the children witnessed turtles, rabbits, lions, giraffes, a sexually abused elephant, dead and burned babies, dead bodies in mortuaries and in graveyards, goat men, flying witches, space mutants, and a movie star, namely Chuck Norris, of course, and local leaders of the community, and politicians. 
The rituals that took place on campus allegedly occurred in secret rooms that were located above and below ground. These rooms were accessed by trap doors and underground tunnels. And we'll get to this in more detail later too. Some of those tunnels led to the street or to the garage of a triplex next door. It would be through these tunnels that children were transported by teachers on various field trips of evil doings. They went to sometimes distant locations and arrived by train, airplanes, in which, by the way, the children were packed like little sardines in freight containers, and also by hot air balloons. The children were made to swear to secrecy by way of threatening the lives of their parents. And the teachers demonstrated their threats by killing and cutting up small animals and horses, admonishing the children that if they were to tell of their travels, this is what would happen to their parents. In March of 1985, a group of 40 to 50 parents of the children at the McMartin Preschool were led by one parent, Bob Curie, to a vacant lot next to the school for a dig for animal remains and secret underground rooms. I mentioned Bob a few minutes ago, and he will come up again. A few days later, an archaeological firm was hired by the district attorney's office to initiate their own excavation of the site. The district attorney's investigators, while at the site of the school, interviewed several of the children while they searched for trapdoors. No evidence was found to support the children's claims about underground tunnels or rooms. The children talked about these rooms and tunnels in their interviews with Key McFarlane. Secret rooms, underground tunnels, places where sexual abuse was rampant. But nothing was found. So this marathon preliminary hearing began in early 1984 before Municipal Court Judge Aviva Bob. And it was akin to a circus in the courtroom. Seven defendants, their seven attorneys, three prosecutors. In the course of a normal preliminary hearing, the prosecutors usually attempt to show cause for bringing the defendants to trial, and the defense usually sits by quietly, observing the proceedings, but that did not happen in this case. Instead, they mounted an aggressive defense, cross-examining the procession of witnesses for the prosecution including the allegedly abused children, the parents of the children, several therapists, and medical experts. The biggest question the defense posed to everyone and anyone who would listen, how could abuse on a scale this massive have gone unnoticed for so many years? And how exactly is anyone believing some of the outrageous things the children are testifying to? Well, if you ask old Key McFarlane, she would tell you that the abuse went on for so long and undetected because either the children were afflicted with, quote, denial syndrome, unquote, or that they were flat out afraid that telling the dark secrets of the McMartin family would cause them great harm, even death, or the death of their parents and loved ones. Key McFarlane claimed that she was able to bring these secrets out of the children by using anatomically correct dolls as well as her handy set of puppets. She used those puppets and she talked through them to ask the children questions as she was interviewing them. 
Her puppets were named Mr. Alligator, Mr. Snake, Detective Dog, and Mr. Sparky. In the videotaped interviews, it's been found over and over again that McFarlane, along with other therapists who were interviewing the children, utilized very strong leading questions and very subtle and indirect pressure in order to try and coerce answers out of the children that would compound the accusations against the defendants. These are therapists who are tasked normally with minimizing a child's trauma, not necessarily collecting evidence for trial. And this would ultimately become one of the biggest weaknesses in the case. These interviews were videotaped, and thank goodness they were, because they would go on to be described as practically a brainwashing of the children. At the Children's Institute International, it was said that the children went in one way and came out completely different once they were interviewed. Key McFarland had worked in treatment programs for abused children for upwards of 10 years by the time she would interview the McMartin Preschool children. And she, working alongside with several other therapists, none of them having any experience garnering the kinds of information and evidence from children that would be able to hold up in court, did so anyway. On the tapes, McFarlane can be seen using her hand puppets and anatomically correct dolls, talking to the children through them. It's obvious that she's not only encouraging the children to make the accusations of having been abused, she's also seen praising children who affirm that they were abused and verbally reprimanding children who deny the abuse. At the preliminary hearing, Defense attorneys played one videotape session where a therapist told a child that there were 183 children that already told their yucky secrets and that all the teachers at their school were sick in the head and they needed to be beaten up. By March of 1984, 384 children were said to have claimed to have been abused at the McMartin Preschool. And don't worry, dreamers, we will talk much more about Key McFarlane's techniques as we go along. And then there was the matter of the children's testimony at the preliminary hearing. The stuff they said was just flat-out bizarre. And not only that, they were inconsistent, erratic, and often contradictory. But these are children, so that has to be taken into account. Some of the children said they were photographed while doing naked somersaults which was a part of the game that they played called the Naked Movie Star Game. The child stated that they played this game while singing the chant, What you see is what you are, you're a naked movie star. Some children said that they played cowboys and Indians while they were naked and where the Indians and cowboys sexually assaulted one another. The children described these sexual assaults occurring on farms or in a circus house, inside homes of people they did not know, at the car wash, in storage lockers, and in secret rooms that they could get to from the McMartin Preschool via underground tunnels. One child said that he witnessed animal sacrifices being carried out by their teachers during these ceremonies, that they wore robes and masks and lit candles at St. Cross Episcopal Church. When the boy was asked by the defense for more details, he said the children were forced to drink the blood of the animals that the teachers were sacrificing. Another boy testified that the teachers at the preschool 
took the students to a cemetery and that they were made to use shovels and pickaxes to dig up coffins. Once they got the coffins above ground, they would pry open the lids of the coffins and their teachers would begin to chop up the bodies inside with knives. By the fall of 1985, a year and a half into the preliminary hearings, even some of the prosecutors were becoming skeptical of the details surrounding the case. One of them even having been quoted as saying, Key McFarlane can make a six-month-old baby say he was molested. Therefore, two of the prosecutors decided it would be best if they dropped the charges against five of the seven defendants, and they just moved forward with the prosecution of only Ray Bucky and his mom, Peggy Bucky. The chief prosecutor, Leo Rubin, insisted that all of them deserve to be prosecuted for the abusers that they all are. But the decision was finally made to go ahead with dropping the charges against the five defendants, leaving only Ray and Peggy to be prosecuted. At this point, the bill for the trial had just reached $4 million for Los Angeles County, and the trial hadn't even started yet. Peggy's bail was set at $1 million, and Ray, he was denied bail. Of course, they vehemently denied all of the charges against them, that they are, in essence, the ones being victimized. It was their contention that the children were being influenced to think, say, and believe things that simply were not true. To add to all of this, one of the biggest contributing factors to the growing hysteria was the testimony of Dr. Roland C. Summit at the preliminary hearings of the McMartin case. He was already well known in the field of mental health for his theories on child sexual abuse when the McMartin case broke. He had published articles and lectured extensively on the topic since 1975 and had been a consultant on child sexual abuse to law enforcement, including the Office of the Los Angeles County District Attorney, since around 1979. He also consulted for the production of a variety of television programs and news reports and publications on child sex abuse. His most notable publication was an article he wrote in 1983 explaining the effects and dynamics of child sex abuse, stating that what occurs is called Child Sexual Abuse Accommodation Syndrome, or CSAAS. The Children's Institute International Interviews were patterned based on one of Dr. Summit's fundamental principles of CSAAS, that sexually abused children remain silent about their experiences. Ah, so, based on his theory, that children remain silent. This is why they needed to have information coaxed out of them in the manner in which it was during their interviews at Children's Institute International. Dr. Summon's involvement in the McMartin case came about when he was called as a prosecution witness during the year-and-a-half-long preliminary hearing. He was the liaison between the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health to Manhattan Beach during the early stages of the case. Dr. Summit actually praised the media hype and the hysteria that it induced, along with all of the community gossip that ensued as a result. Yes, he praised it, and Key McFarlane was able to capitalize on that. He called the hype and hysteria a public service, stating in the preliminary testimony, quote, without such press coverage, 
we would be trapped by our old myths about child sexual abuse. He also chided investigators for not allowing parents the ability to cope with the trauma of their child having been abused by discouraging them from meeting and discussing the case with each other. He further insinuated that investigators did not have the best interest of the community in mind, explaining that the priority should be to support the children and to renew the awareness of the importance of the world presented to children and that the need to invest money and energy in presenting that environment. He told the court that, quote, hundreds of children had escaped sexual assault as a direct result of the publicity around the McMartin case. Dr. Summit further called for a vast expansion of the availability for the children of the Manhattan Beach area to access therapeutic resources. He compounded this with stern warnings, as if the apocalypse would be looming if resources were not made widely and readily available, especially if anyone were to deny that these services were desperately needed in the community. He said that the discovery of abuse will develop into suspicion and that there would be a predictable turnaround to challenge whether or not these things happened. There will be scapegoating as well. Key McFarlane will be labeled as a hack and an amateur, and the true advocate for the sexually abused child will be defiled and discredited. The battle between disclosure and denial will pit neighbor against neighbor, and the abused child will remain silent because he is not believed. He warned the community, the residents of Manhattan Beach, the parents of the McMartin Preschool, to not divide themselves between believers and non-believers, telling the court that polarity of views is destructive. There is a need to realize that more than one generation of kids has been damaged. He went on to say that unless these children receive proper therapy, along with a very quick resolution to the case, meaning a quick guilty verdict for the defendants, that the community will become divided and remain divided, and justice will never prevail and the Manhattan Beach community will remain on the brink of a psychological calamity. He testified, If Manhattan Beach is able to reconstitute itself in the wake of this, it will be a very different community for being made to face this child abuse crisis. He said that the community needed to do everything it could to rip the scabs off of these wounds, let the pus pour out, and only then would you have the basis on which to focus your most urgent priorities? And only then would there be an opportunity for a full recovery and healing. And it was going to take years, maybe decades, to reestablish trust in the community. Dr. Summit also strongly defended the methods Key McFarlane and the Children's Institute International used in their interviews with the students of the McMartin Preschool, calling it state-of-the-art sexual child abuse diagnostic techniques. In his words, highly evolved, intensely specific, and largely unknown outside of the fledgling specialty of child abuse diagnosis is an amalgam of several roles. It combines the knowledge of a child development specialist to understand and translate toddler language, a therapist to guide and interpret interactive play, 
a police interrogator to develop evidentiary information, and a child abuse specialist to recognize the distinctive and pathetic patterns of sexual victimization. And dreamers, those are pretty lofty qualifications, right? Well, guess what? At the time Key McFarlane began her interviews with the children, she was unlicensed in the state of California. She had a bachelor's degree in fine arts and a master's in social work. And when she was made the head of the Children's Institute International, she labeled herself a psychotherapist, but had no professional licensing to indicate as such. Dr. Summit had even at one point referred to Key McFarlane as a recycled social worker, but at the same time, he also said that the most advanced research on sexual abuse was not being published by research professionals with the most educational background and scientific training, but rather by the recycled social workers who were actually the first ones to recognize that children do not lie about being abused and were the first ones to develop that kind of expertise in the clinical level. And it was that kind of expertise that would be necessary to understand that lack of proof is proof, that denial is an earmark of sexual abuse. Dr. Summit said, Key has perfected a motherly, down-to-earth, reassuring method that allows children to trust her. She teases the information out while other therapists discredit the child's assertions or assume it will come out of them spontaneously. If you're already questioning this doctor's opinions, it gets better. He actually openly contradicted himself in an article in the Los Angeles Times where he had a long narrative regarding Key McFarlane's supposed range of talents, including her expertise in conducting police interrogations and bringing about evidentiary information that could be used in court. He countered that by saying, just like everyone else involved in the McMartin case, Key was handicapped with imperfect knowledge, inadequate resources, and intolerable urgency. Okay, but... How about she didn't know what the heck she was doing when she was questioning those kids? Oh, and we'll get into all that stuff too, dreamers. The article Dr. Summit wrote was highly critical of the police investigation. He called it absurd to apply criminal justice standards to the multi-turf world of sexual abuse. He further wrote that it was the goal of the clinical child abuse diagnostic specialist such as Key McFarlane, to find sexual abuse victims, not to prosecute their perpetrators. He bemoaned that because the charges against most of the McMartin teachers were dropped because of a lack of evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, that hundreds of children were diagnosed by Children's Institute International as having been sexually abused will be dismissed by the criminal justice system, sending the message that any child who cannot prove a charge beyond a reasonable doubt, doesn't matter. That their abuse doesn't count for anything. He strongly advised law enforcement and those involved in the criminal justice system to develop new sources of gathering evidence so they can better understand a crime that does not leave obvious evidence behind, such as child sexual abuse. When it came to the process of videotaping the interviews, 
Dr. Summit said that it was originally intended to help streamline the investigative process for the benefit of the children. But the whole thing had been turned on its head in order to serve the broader interests of society rather than the interests of justice. Only a few moments were cherry-picked for viewing out of thousands and thousands of hours of tape. Fragments chosen by the defense attorneys to make the process appear to be corrupt. Um, yeah? Dr. Summit said the whole story had not yet been told and that many of the tapes were waiting to be analyzed. And there was much more out there yet to be seen. As he said, another rational clinical record exists of out-of-state children who claim to have been molested at the McMartin Preschool. Rather than decapitate the messenger, meaning McFarlane, we might better take a second look at the message. The voracious manner in which Dr. Summit defended Key McFarlane's techniques apparently had exactly nothing to do with the fact that he had never once in his life ever viewed one single tape of the 400 interviews that she conducted with the children, nor had he read any of the transcripts. In an interview with the Canadian Broadcasting System in 1993, the following exchange happened. Reporter, did you review the tapes? Dr. Summit, I have not reviewed the tapes. Reporter, how can you comment on Key McFarland's ability in these interviews if you have not screened the tapes? Dr. Summit, my comments in support of Key McFarland's interview techniques were based on my knowledge of her and our discussions of what she was doing. Okay, Dr. Summit, if you say so, but dreamers, there is very, very little record out there of Key's techniques. A lot of the videotapes have been sealed and are never going to be seen. There are some clips and some transcripts from the preliminary hearings, and I will go over those, most likely in part two of this series. So, just before the trial was set to begin in the courtroom of Judge William R. Pounders, there was some independent documentarians putting together a film about the McMartin Preschool. They had something they wanted to turn over to the judge and the California Attorney General. Copies of an interview that they taped with a prosecutor on the case, Glenn Stevens. In his interview, he apparently conceded that the children began, in his words, embellishing and embellishing, more and more their recounting of instances of sexual abuse. And as for himself and his team of prosecutors, they really had no business being in court. And for some inexplicable reason, he admitted on tape that prosecutors withheld potentially exculpatory evidence from the defense including potentially damning evidence regarding the mental stability, or instability as it were, of the very person who was setting this whole train wreck in motion, Judy Johnson. Remember her, dreamers? She started it all. All way back when. Yep, 
Anne Stevens also admitted on tape that her son was not even able to identify Ray Bucky in a police lineup. So with this information, defense attorneys motioned to have all the charges dropped against Ray and Peggy. But their motion was denied by the judge. And the trial was going to move forward. This might be a good time to talk a little bit more about Judy Johnson. The woman who set this whole entire ordeal in motion with one accusation. Let's look at her timeline and the events surrounding the Martin Preschool. And dreamers, you might begin to feel from very early on that something is not quite right with Judy Johnson. And remember, everything that happened over those seven years was all because of her. And I keep emphasizing that because I just can't get over that fact. Her timeline is pretty lengthy, but I find it absolutely fascinating. So, here we go. On August 12, 1983, Judy took her son, Billy, and I'm not sure if that's his name or not. I've seen it listed as a couple of different names, but for the sake of this, we will call him Billy. She took him to the doctor. Remember, we talked about this at the very beginning with some issues going to the bathroom and some itching. The father of the boy would later report that Billy consistently had bad hygiene. Judy became convinced that her son was being sexually abused, that he was fine before he went to school, but when she examined him when he got home, she saw the redness. She claimed that this had happened on previous occasions and that her son was showing other signs of sexual trauma, including restlessness and nighttime crying. She also said that one time while she was giving her son a bath after school, she noticed a spot of blood on his bottom. On another occasion, she said that her son would not let her hold him, and that he appeared to be in a great deal of discomfort when she tried to rest his buttocks upon her hand. Judy said she asked him if he had been sodomized, and he said no. Side note, I don't know how you ask a two-year-old if they've been sodomized or not. But he did say that Ray had taken his temperature right away. I'm seeing all sorts of things wrong with this. First off, is it just me or is Judy overly concerned with her son's bottom? I mean, okay, we who have kids, myself included, and I have worked as a preschool teacher and a nanny for the better part of 15 years. I have changed a bazillion diapers, literally, right? Yes, as we change diapers, we give the kid a quick once-over, and just in case we need to apply powder or whatever. But the bathtub thing doesn't make any sense to me. How is she seeing a spot of blood on his anus if he's in the tub? He would have to be on his back or bent over, right? Wouldn't being in the water rinse away the blood? And wouldn't she have checked his underwear or if he wasn't potty trained yet? Because remember, he's two, so he may still be in diapers or pull-ups or whatever. And I don't even know if pull-ups were a thing in 1983. Wouldn't she have checked there for some blood? 
I've seen kids bleed for two reasons. One, a really bad diaper rash. And two, if they had been constipated and passed a really difficult bowel movement. And not only that, she asked her two-year-old son if he had been sodomized. And he, at age two, managed to brush that aside and tell her, no, it wasn't sodomy. It was Mr. Ray taking my temperature. Um, okay. I know toddlers have had their temperature taken there. But does he really know that's what's going on at his age? All of this stuff. Right away, a detective should have been skeptical. But they weren't. Because according to the detective's report, Judy's son understood the meaning of the words penis and anus. He also stated to the detective that he showered with his older brother and he had seen his penis and that he had seen Ray's penis. But he did not say that he was sodomized. While his mother was in the room, Billy said Ray took naked pictures of him. The night prior to Judy reporting the alleged sexual abuse, Billy had gone out to dinner with his older brother and his father. He had been at the preschool prior to that until approximately 4 p.m. when his dad picked him up. The following morning, Judy looked at her son's bottom again and found it to be red. Billy's brother said that he did not see their father molest his brother. When asked by his mom if Ray had penetrated him with his penis, he said no. Billy's older brother was also asked if he had penetrated Billy with his penis, and he said no. But he did tell police that he had touched his younger brother's private parts, but it was not sexual, but rather for purposes of taking a shower. It was also during Judy's first in-person interview with detectives that she said Billy told her that he was taken by Ray from his cot during nap time, brought into the bathroom, that a hairdryer was being put on his head, his hands were placed behind him, and he was being rolled over and poked by Ray, and that his bottom hurt. Six days later, on August 18, 1983, Judy met with detectives again. She related to them that over the past few days, her son had used his brother's Boy Scout rope to show her how he had been tied up. She asked him if he wanted to tie her up, and he said no, tie Billy up. When she asked him how she should tie him up, he told her to put the rope around his neck. He then proceeded to wrap the rope around his own neck and crossed it over his hands, which were in front of him. She then went on to describe... Billy's overall behavior in the previous month and a half. Behaviors she attributed to being sexually abused. Temper tantrums, restlessness, night crying, not wanting to eat, not wanting to be held. He had a rash on his inner thighs, around his mouth, redness on his bottom, and a swollen face. He picked out his blanket. He woke up a lot during the night. He seemed afraid of men. His teachers told her that he cried excessively at school. He's whiny, clingy, runs and hides, fears strangers, suffered from nightmares, would tell his mom to go away, complain he was too hot, 
Then he would have potty accidents. He had trouble sitting still. He pushes things with his feet. He sucks his thumb. He was afraid of the dark and afraid of monsters. I don't know, dreamers. This is a lot of stuff to deal with in one preschooler. And it might be kind of excessive misbehaving, but all of these things, independent of each other, I don't find all that troubling. If the child were to have developed a strong sense of trust with his primary caregivers, many of these issues can be dealt with by the parents. And you know what, guys? For once... I can honestly say I'm kind of an expert on this. Finally, as I do have a degree in child development, I have a degree in early childhood education, and I have a bachelor's in human services. And if I were to take a guess, Billy's problems originated at home. Based on knowing what I know about how his story plays out, I don't think Billy formed a trusting bond with his parents as an infant. His instinctual needs when he was born were not being met. When he was hungry, he wasn't being fed in a timely manner. When he soiled his diaper, he was left to sit in it too long. When he'd cry, no one was there to comfort him in the ways that he needed to be comforted. So, he sucks his thumb to self-pacify and he has rashes, and admittedly poor hygiene. He did not feel physically good while he was an infant, and as he grew, his feelings were starting to manifest themselves in the ways that a toddler does. Tantrums, bedwetting, misbehaving. But Judy has planted the seed that it's sexual abuse, and from there, it snowballed. Judy also related that the previous weekend, she went into Billy's room and found him crouched on his stomach with his butt in the air. Billy was saying the words, get away, while he was whining and pushing at his rear end. The morning before Judy came for this particular meeting with detectives, she asked Billy if Ray had ever touched his penis, and his answer was, is that he kissed it. Billy repeated this statement to detectives. On August 29, 1983, Judy called the detective again and said that three nights before, while she was trying to put her son to bed, he ran away and hid from her, telling her that he wanted her to pretend to be a child at the school with him so they could run away and hide from Ray. So she pretended to hide with him, and he told her to be quiet, that Ray was coming. She also told him, that Billy had come into the bathroom while she was changing and saw her in her bra, and that he wanted to wear one. She said that she explained to him that he could not wear a bra, and it was then, according to Judy, that Ray put a bra on him. She also told the detective in the same conversation that she was at the store with her two sons when Billy's attention seemed fixated on the light. She then asked him if Ray used the light to take his picture, and he said yes. On the way out of the store, Billy noticed a picture of a boy in a clown costume. She told Billy that the clown was a boy wearing makeup. 
he told her that Mike also wore makeup. Judy did not know who Mike was, so she pressed him some more about the makeup, and he eventually told her that Ray put makeup on him. She also related to the detectives that she questioned Billy more about the redness on his bottom, and he apparently told her that he didn't tell her about it because Ray threatened him. On August 30th, 1983, Judy went to the police station with Billy for another interview with the detectives. Billy told them that he had put makeup on himself at school, and so did Ray. He also told the detectives that Ray tied him up with rope. But when he asked Billy if Ray dressed him in a bra, he said no. When the detective asked him where Ray put his penis, he opened his legs and pointed to his bottom and said that it still hurts. The detective contacted a number of other parents that same day this interview took place, and all the children denied being sexually abused at the McMartin Preschool. On September 7, 1983, Ray Bucky was arrested based on Judy's claims to the detectives. They also received medical reports, which did not diagnose any signs of sexual abuse on Billy. At the time Ray was arrested, police reported that he was not wearing any underwear. The next day, Judy told detectives that her son recently said that Ray does not wear underwear. Following Ray's arrest, Judy regularly contacted police and the district attorney's investigators, long after his arrest even. And the chatter and gossip was quickly spreading through the city of Manhattan Beach and the surrounding communities, some of which was perpetrated by Judy herself, going and talking to other parents directly. And Judy's stories to detectives started to become more and more strange as time went on. On September 29, 1983, Judy called the detective on the case and told him that Billy told her that Ray took him to the store and bought him gum. On September 30th, Judy called again, this time reporting that her son told her that Ray sodomized him while his head was in the toilet and Ray was wearing a mask. She said that her son said Ray had slapped him and pulled his hair and that he was continuing to act out and misbehave and that her son tried to tie her up again. On October 17, 1983, detectives had Billy look at some pictures of people from the preschool. He could not identify anyone and he didn't even understand the word name. And according to Judy, Billy said that Ray told him, quote, Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater, unquote, before performing oral sex on him. She said Billy told her that Ray fondled his genitals and that he put him in a high place in a closet and that Ray hurt him during a game of hide-and-seek and that Ray kissed him with wet kisses all over his body and that Ray took his blood pressure by putting his penis between the pressure cuff and the boy's arm. Judy also said that Billy told her that Ray gave him a shot with a needle and that he pinched his cheeks, tied his hands behind his back as he lay down on the cot, slapped him in the chest, sodomized him, and threatened his life if Billy told anyone. This is what Judy said Billy said. All of this during nap time. In a quiet room 
with maybe 11 or 12 other children max, not all of them necessarily asleep, and all of this is going on there. And he's telling her this, all the while, Billy doesn't even comprehend the word name in the question, what's his name? On October 19, 1983, Judy Johnson reported that her son saw Ray in a cape and that he sat on Ray's lap and it hurt. Ray inserted an air tube into his rectum while another teacher looked on and that Ray put tape over his eyes and his mouth and bound his hands with tape. And then the next day, on October 20th, Judy contacted detectives and told them that her son told her that Ray dressed up like a minister. And thus, the foundation for the religious undertones in all of this has just been laid. On November 10th, detectives interviewed Betty Rader, a teacher at the McMartin Preschool. She would later be one of the seven charged in connection with the molestation allegations. She told detectives that she knew Billy very well, and she was adamant that the boy, while in attendance at the school, was not verbal. Yep, you heard that right, not verbal. On November 17th, Judy Johnson reported that her son was taken to Ray's apartment and sodomized by him and another man, and that there was another young boy there. Billy said he was placed in a bathtub and photographed. The next day, Judy reported that another teacher at the school, a female, took his clothes off and hurt him while she was touching him. On November 30th, Judy Johnson reported to detectives that Billy told her that a female teacher caused him to vomit by stepping on his stomach and that an old woman came to the school and held his feet down while he was sodomized and he was forced to perform a sex act on Ray's mother, and during all of this, Ray wasn't wearing any underwear. Judy also reported during the same conversation that her son had been driven someplace far away by somebody named Dave, and that he was taken to a ranch where he was stripped naked and rode on horses. Billy said he saw Ray take pills and give himself a shot, and then he killed a dog and put a cat in hot water. And this would be where the satanic ritual aspect of this case began to take form. On December 19, 1983, Judy reported that her son told her that he saw rabbits being chopped up. He also told her that a teacher slapped him and another teacher hurt him by putting some kind of star on his bottom. I'm assuming Judy is attempting to describe a pentagram although she at least has some sense to know that her two-year-old is not likely going to know what a pentagram is, thus assigning the description of a star. She also reported that her son told her that Ray dressed up in police, firefighter, clown, clergyman, and Santa Claus costumes, and that Ray threatened that he was going to get him and burn down his house. And Ray told her son that his mother wouldn't love him anymore. She also indicated that Billy had become afraid of the dark. On January 20th, 1984, Judy reported to detectives that her son was taken to a car wash and locked in a trunk and that he was molested at the car wash. Three days later, on January 23rd, Judy reported that her son told her 
about several other locations that Ray had taken him to, including another preschool in the Bay Area, to the zoo, to another car wash where he was sodomized. He also told his mom that he had been taken to some unknown location on two different buses with lots of other children, along with other unknown men and women who were present. Over the course of two days, February 15th and 16th, 1984, Judy gave the following detailed report to investigators. The following is taken directly from notes taken by a deputy district attorney summarizing Johnson's latest reports. Billy talked about having communion in a church and that there was prayer, similar in sound to the Lord's Prayer that was being read. A goat climbed up higher and higher and higher. Then a bad man threw it down the stairs. It woke up later, and Ray poked Peggy at the altar. There were lots of candles, and they were all black. Ray pricked Billy's right index finger, and it bled, and he inserted his finger into the goat. Under the robes everyone was wearing, they were all naked. They put a band-aid on his finger where he was pricked. The old grandma played the piano. They were all threatening Billy and his family. Billy said a baby, a real baby, had its head chopped off and its brains burned. Peggy and Billy killed the baby. Peggy had scissors in the church and she cut Billy's hair. Billy had to drink the baby's blood. Ray wanted Billy to spit. He put the baby on the altar. The baby was big like Billy. It screamed. When Billy's bottom was bleeding, Ray put a tampon in him to stop the bleeding and then took it out. In referring to a newspaper ad from a local gym, Billy said he knew all the people in the ad. The three women were witches, and the man poked them. Peggy, Babette, and Betty, the preschool owner and two teachers, dressed up as witches too. The person who buried Billy was Miss Betty. There were no holes in his coffin. Babette went with him on a train with another girl where he was hurt by men in suits. Ray waved goodbye. The train moved fast. It had lights. Ray took him back to school or to Big Brothers, a local organization. Peggy gave Billy an enema before he was taken away from the McMartin preschool. Staples were put into Billy's ears, nipples, and tongue. Babette put scissors in his eyes. She hit him a lot. She chopped up animals and said she would come in the night and take him away. She pushed on his stomach and threw him against the wall. Billy is extremely afraid of Babette. Something awful would come in the window. Ray made small babies cry. Billy was hurt by a lion. An elephant played with the lion and sprayed it with water. The lion didn't move. Billy was on his back. Ray let him pull the lion's tail. The lion roared but did not move. Betty was there, and other people. One lady took pictures. On February 22nd, Judy came back in to talk to detectives further about the things her son had been telling her. The following is also a verbatim report directly from the detective's notes in speaking with Judy, some of it being repeated tellings from her previous interviews. Judy claimed that Billy said to her, that he feels like he left LAX in an airplane and flew to Palm Springs. He described the plane as one being used by Federal Express, but it had windows. 
Billy went to an armory located behind Judy Johnson's house. Ray drove there in his VW bus. Billy went with Peggy, who drove a red and white VW bus, at the armory where there were some people wearing army uniforms. The goat man was there. After going to the armory, Bill was taken to Sand Dune Park at the armory, where the atmosphere was ritualistic. When Billy was taken to a church, Judy believes it was the Church of Religious Science. At the church, Peggy drilled a child under the arms in their armpits. There were magic acts, and Ray Bucky flew through the air. Among the other things Judy accused Ray Bucky of doing included, of course, the sodomy, but doing so while Billy's head was in the toilet. He had taken her son to a car wash and locked him in the trunk, and that Ray danced around the preschool wearing a cape and a Santa costume, and that the other teachers at the school chopped up live rabbits and put some sort of star on her son's bottom. And this is where we begin to learn exactly what is going on with Judy Johnson, in case you are wondering if something might be amiss. In March of 1985, Judy experienced a psychotic episode that required hospitalization. The following is an account taken from the police report filed in the incident. Judy's dad and brother contacted police to report that she needed to be taken into the hospital for psychiatric evaluation and possible commitment. This call was triggered by Judy's mental condition to seemingly be in a state of perpetual deterioration and both her father and her brother had repeatedly attempted to urge Judy to seek treatment by committing herself into a psychiatric hospital. On March 6, Judy's father and brother arrived at her home and knocked. They gained entry when Billy, who was now four years old by this time, let them in. Judy emerged from her bedroom with a 12-gauge shotgun and came within a few feet of her brother. She stared at him maintaining direct eye contact with him all the while. She pumped the shotgun and prepared to shoot when she announced, Get off my land. This is sacred property. Her father and brother promptly left and headed over to the police station. They were in fear for the safety of her children, as well as for herself. So they initiated arrangements to have Judy involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital. Her commitment to Kaiser Hospital in Harbor City, California was approved by the Los Angeles County Mental Health Services. As a matter of fact, the official who approved her admittance was very well aware of Judy's mental condition due to the notoriety of the McMartin molestation case, which had been sensationalized in the media. Because of Judy's extreme paranoia towards uniformed officers and the fact that it is known she had a shotgun and possibly a twenty-two caliber rifle in her home, Plainclothes officers were sent in to take her and her children into custody. When officers arrived at her home, her oldest son attempted to alert his mother as to the presence of the police, so it was necessary for him to be restrained and removed from the scene. Then they entered the home and took Judy and her sons into custody without incident. They later found that twenty-two caliber rifle under the bed of her eldest son. After a 12-day psychiatric evaluation, Judy Johnson was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. On December 19, 1986, Judy Johnson was found dead in her home, having died of complications related to alcohol poisoning. At the time of Judy's death, 
her mental stability or instability was the focal point of the preliminary hearings that were going on at the time in the molestation case against the McMartin preschool teachers as a direct result of the accusations she had made. The defense's contention was the prosecutors had purposely suppressed some of the more bizarre and unbelievable claims that Judy had made, and I just told you all of them, and they withheld that information regarding her mental health. The defense maintained that they knew Judy was unbalanced but didn't tell them, and that her mental health issues should have been cause for them to question the validity of the claims she said her son was making against Ray Bucky. In a nutshell, if not for Judy Johnson, there would be no McMartin case. The defense motioned the charges against Ray Bucky and Peggy McMartin Bucky be dismissed. Sounds legitimate, right? This lady was a little bit off, to say the least, and her charges should have been seriously questioned. And the fact that prosecutors withheld important exculpatory evidence, this case should have been tossed way out of court. But no. Motion to dismiss denied. This case was going to trial, despite Judy Johnson. Now, I want to talk to you about another parent that I mentioned earlier. The one who became the unofficial, official parent investigator in this case against the McMartin Preschool, Bob Curie. Let's look at his timeline in this case. He was one of the most adamant believers in the accusations and in the tunnels involved in the McMartin case. He was a real estate broker and he would go on to conduct his own pseudo-investigation into the accusations against the so-called hordes of molesters. He went to the homes of other McMartin parents, ones who had not made any kinds of stories about abuse at the preschool, and told them that their children were named as victims by other children who had been interviewed at Children's Institute International. Yep, you heard that right. He went and told parents that their kids were named by other kids as having been molested at the school. Bob, whose three kids who had attended the McMartin Preschool from 1972 to 1981, had never indicated at any point that they were abused while at the school. His daughter, the oldest of his children, would never make not one accusation against any of the teachers at her former school, despite attempts by good old Key McFarlane to bring accusations out of them. Bob's two sons, his younger kids, after they were interviewed by McFarlane, would eventually make very bizarre claims against their former teachers at the school. So Bob took his investigation to another level by offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to the uncovering of child pornography purportedly produced by the teachers at the school. For the duration of the McMartin case, Bob Curie was making himself known loud and clear in the media. He was a frequent guest on television programs and news reports. Eventually, the Bucky family sued Bob for libel. And after that, he basically went radio silent in the wake of the suit against him. But Bob's second eldest son would keep up what his father had been doing in the media, 
but to a much lesser extent. And the following is a timeline of Bob Carey's role in the case of the McMartin Preschool. Going back in time a little bit, on June 16, 1980, Bob's oldest son had gone to the doctor with his mother as he was complaining of discomfort due to a swollen penis. This is really bizarre, you guys, but this is what the report said. The doctor found a hair that appeared to be tied around the base of his penis. So the doctor removed the hair, and for some inexplicable reason, this hair was allegedly preserved and kept for four years and turned over to the Manhattan Beach Police on May 11, 1984, as evidence of molestation at the McMartin Preschool, seven months after the case broke. The following is a transcript of an interview with Peggy Bucky as to her recollections of her interactions with Bob Curie, conducted sometime in late August or early September of 1983. She said, Bob Curie came over. He lived across the street and up the hill a little way. He came over as a friend, and I went for it. He said, Peggy, I don't know if your son is guilty or not, but my kid could not remember because it was too many years ago. Now Bob's trying to say that all his kids were molested by Ray. So Bob would come over. He would tease me and say that he had a crush on me. And I said, that's a bunch of baloney. Bob would come over and say, well, how are things going, Peg? I can still see the last time when we were sitting and he said, you know, Peg, I was at a meeting last night. They're out to destroy you and your mother. Take your school, your reputation, all your money from you. And I said, oh, Bob, that's silly. They aren't going to do that. And that's exactly what they did do. And Bob kept asking me. He wanted to buy the school, even asking my mother. He got very provoked at me one time. He called me after we closed the school. We closed the school down, not the state. We decided that after the threats, that it wasn't fair to Babs, another teacher, and the children. So we closed it down in the middle of January. In February, I was attacked in my backyard and cut up all between my legs. I had beginning threatening calls and letters. And one of the fathers, a McMartin parent, came to the door. This was after the school was closed. He had all this beard and goatee. First, I didn't recognize him, of course. I have a screen door. And then he called me every unbelievable name under the sun. And I, of course, don't know who he is at first. And he said, if I see your son, I'm going to kill him. I had to open the screen door. And then I saw Ray down at the end of the street. And I thought, oh, please, God, don't have him come up here because this dad is out of control. He was so angry that as he left our yard, he took the gate and threw it so hard against the house that he broke it and knocked some things off my wall. Of course, I called Chuck. That's Peggy's husband, Ray's dad. And he called the police, who came down and filed a report. In February, I very stupidly took a small pair of scissors for protection, and I let my dogs in the house, and I went out back. You know, in Manhattan Beach, how houses are all on the side of the hill, and you have to walk back down to the alley? As I walked back, 
Someone grabbed me from behind and I passed out. This guy threatened me that he would harm my mother. He took the scissors and he cut me on the side of my vagina. He cut me all over. He said if I told anyone, he would get my mom too. In September of 1983, when those 200 letters were sent out to former and current parents by the Manhattan Beach Police Department requesting that parents quiz their children about the possibility of having been abused, Bob Curie made a complete 180 and answered the letter by stating that he had no information about abuse, indicating the following, quote, I believe Ray Bucky to be a fine young man who happens to be in youth education. But on February 24, 1984, Bob Curie pivoted again, opting to sue Virginia McMartin and Peggy Bucky for assault and battery, intentional infliction of emotional distress and negligence, seeking monetary compensation of $1 million in punitive damages from each of the defendants named in his suit. On March 1, 1984, Key McFarland interviewed Bob Curie's two sons. His older son had been enrolled at the McMartin Preschool from September of 1974 through June of 1978. The younger one was enrolled from September of 1978 through June of 1981. Neither one of the Curie boys was enrolled at the school during the time that Ray Bucky worked there as a teacher. You heard that right. Neither one of them was there at the same time Ray Bucky was there. But never mind that fact, right? Leave it to Key McFarlane to elicit stories from the older son about Ray threatening the children into keeping quiet by using a gun, tickling him as a ploy to touch him, and inserting a thermometer into his rectum to purportedly take his temperature. He also said that they played the naked movie star game, that Ray Bucky sodomized him, and that rabbits and turtles were killed in his presence. The Curie's younger son told Key McFarland that the teachers threatened to harm his parents if he talked about the abuse. He also said that he played the naked movie star game. He spoke of being digitally penetrated, sodomized, and participated in other sexual acts, including oral sex. He also told Key that he was taken to a farmhouse where he watched a horse be killed, then a tiger, then a kangaroo, then a monkey. All of this and he never attended the school during the time Ray taught there. Key McFarlane is some piece of work. In a follow-up interview with the younger Curie boy, McFarlane was also able to obtain more information where he expanded on his farm story. He identified the farm residence where the horse was allegedly killed, and there he also rode on white horses, and in total, it took about four hours to make the trip to the farm and back. On July 19, 1984, Bob Curie informed the FBI that his children claimed to have been molested by teachers at the McMartin Preschool. He told the FBI that he had the chance to confer with many of the other McMartin parents and proclaimed to agents that he was leading the charge as the child molestation investigator in the city of Manhattan Beach. As a matter of fact, his supposed expertise on the topic of child abuse had actually earned him invitations to speak about child abuse at events in Sacramento, California. 
as well as other functions outside of the state. In the meantime, Bob's wife was busy launching a telephone network with parents and other former students of the school so there would be a centralized place to collect all the evidence of molestation in one single place. And it was in these conversations with other parents that not only convinced Bob Curie beyond any doubt that not only had his children been systematically molested for years at the McMartin Preschool, but that the employees, administration, and the owner of the school were all members of a satanic cult and actively participated in satanic cult activities under the guise of operating a preschool. And during the course of Bob Curie's so-called investigations that he appointed himself in charge of, he discovered a lengthy list of off-campus molestation locations that were collected via the Children's Institute International, information elicited from interviews with children by their therapists, led by Ms. Key McFarlane. And it was his duty to seek out these locations identified by these children, drive by them to confirm them as suspected locations, that he took his own son with him, along with other former students, and they confirmed these locations that they were brought to and molested. On one of his ride-alongs, Bob's son pointed out a red convertible as being one of the vehicles that he was transported in to one of the satanic rituals. So Bob followed this car to a local restaurant, and as he pulled next to the car, his son identified the unsuspecting driver as being the chauffeur for one of their sex abuse field trips. Bob wrote down the license plate number of the car and was able to obtain the registered owner's name. He passed this information on to the FBI. You guys, this self-appointed investigator, Bob Curie, this nobody is going around doing all this stuff. Absolutely incredible, right? On July 25th, 1984, Bob Curie reported to the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office investigators that he and another McMartin preschool parent who would also be involved later on down the road in the tunnel investigations, which we will get into, Jackie McGauley, that they uncovered very important leads regarding the off-campus trips that the children made to the mortuaries and cemeteries. Bob also demanded to know when the investigators would be following up on the leads, and he admonished them, reminding them that he was the, in his words, watchdog to keep the investigators on the straight and narrow. By the following month of August 1984, Bob Curie had gotten himself involved in a documentary on ABC's 2020 about devil worshippers, and he was slated to appear in two more episodes. On November 19, 1984, Bob continued to contact the district attorney's investigators regarding the progress he was making in his freelance investigation into not only the McMartin Preschool, but other schools as well. Based on Bob's methodology, and according to the conclusions of his investigatory processes, it would suggest that Bob had developed an ongoing and mounting obsession with his self-appointed duties as a McMartin Preschool sleuth. And what's more, he had been made the spokesperson 
for a newly formed organization, Parents Against Child Abuse. They tasked themselves with surveillance activities, covertly trailing supposed suspicious vehicles while taking down their license plate numbers and using that information to obtain names and phone numbers of those car owners. Bob was particularly interested in one specific intersection in Manhattan Beach because a friend of Ray's happened to live there, and Bob said that there was a lot of activity that went on there. He, along with other members of Parents Against Child Abuse, staked out the house and ended up collecting license plate numbers, the home addresses, work addresses, and phone numbers of 30 motorists that happened to be near that intersection. Bob also noticed a home that had a swimming pool in the backyard and a basketball hoop, and the reason this caught his attention was because it was his belief that a child was thrown into a swimming pool under the guise that the child would be rescued by Ray Bucky. He was also certain that Peggy Bucky had been at the same house to get a haircut. So, they somehow must be connected to the child molestation. Bob also went to the Hawthorne Airport as a part of his ongoing investigation, as there were allegations that children were flown there in a passenger plane. Bob took down the tail number of a plane, one I assume that looks suspicious-like, tracked down its owner, and came to find the owner was a local area teacher too. In following up on some allegations the children had made that they were packed and flown in air freight containers, Bob found what he believed was the name of the freight company that the children were transported in. In another reconnaissance mission, Bob gathered more intelligence on the alleged air molestation and discovered a female pilot who flies out of the Torrance Airport who was purportedly a lesbian. The parents of another child at the McMartin Preschool, who had eight months earlier talked about a devil's house in his interview with Children's Institute International, investigated the child's claims and located a ranch where children had supposedly been taken. They found out who the owner was of a suspicious car they saw near the ranch and gave that information to investigators. Other children who brought up a devil's house in their interviews purportedly pointed to a house in Manhattan Beach as the place that they were brought to, and another woman claimed to have been taken to that very same house when she was five years old. Bob also gave the district attorney's investigators the names of McMartin parents, not teachers, parents this time, who he suspected of being cohorts in the satanic molestations going on at the school. Yes, you heard that correctly. He was making allegations now about other parents. But to be fair, Bob also gave investigators the names of McMartin parents he thought would be helpful and cooperate with the investigation into the satanic abuse allegations. Amongst the list of cooperative parents Bob provided was Jackie McGauley, who now had claimed that she knew a woman who had cleaned up blood at a nearby church where satanic rituals were regularly being held. Bob Curie included in his report to investigators that he had a confidential informant who told him that the Major League Baseball team, the Anaheim Angels, might also be involved with the molestations as well. He provided a list of suspects from the team, including the name of the team's scout, 
Bob also investigated the owners of another nearby South Bay preschool and claimed that its owners were two years behind on their rent on their facility and that their music program was a front for a child molestation ring. Bob next contacted officials at Wind Cave National Park, a place where Ray Bucky's sister had been employed in the summers past. It was Bob's contention that Ray could have buried incriminating evidence at a family ranch near the National Park. The district attorneys also obtained a tip from a jailhouse informant. And in following up on that tip, they followed Ray while he was on his way to visit his sister at this park, hoping that this would lead them to a cave containing harmful and disturbing images of child abuse. They did not find any. By the way, the Bucky family never owned a ranch, and jailhouse informants also became a very troubling aspect of the molestation case that was building against the McMartin defendants. Good old Bob next reported that he received two phone calls who were responding to the $10,000 reward that he had offered for evidence of the McMartin harmful images of children. One of those informants looking to collect on the money was actually on the run for some outstanding warrants for probation violations. He said that he could produce photographic evidence of the harmful images of child abuse in exchange for being let off the hook for those warrants. The district attorney told Bob that they would try to work out a deal with the man. A second informant, located outside of the state, claimed to have pictures too. But this evidence was never produced. By April of 1985, Bob's daughter, by then 15 years old, was continuing to insist that she had never been molested by anyone at the McMartin Preschool. But despite her vehement denials and the absence of any sort of medical evidence, Bob had his daughter placed into counseling and with a therapist referred to him by the Children's Institute International because they diagnosed her with having symptoms consistent with the history of sexual abuse, meaning her denials. In June of 1985, Bob was still at it. He urged the district attorney's office to join him in a sting operation that he was organizing to uncover the supposed images of child abuse. He told investigators that he knew someone who knew someone who was an informant who said that he knew how the children were being moved around. But it was determined that that person Bob knew was really someone after the $10,000 reward and had exactly zero information about disturbing images of child abuse. Alleged pictures of child abuse at the McMartin Preschool or any of the purported locations children were ever transported to were never uncovered. In September of 1985, a district attorney investigator pressed Bob Curie's then eight-year-old son to try and remember more details of abuse he suffered. Remember, the boy had already been placed in an incredible amount of pressure by his father and by some of his peers to testify in court against the defendants. The eight-year-old was asked to focus on events that involved Ray Bucky's father. The investigator told him that they needed to see if he could remember any more details about the incidents or if he could remember any more specific dates on which these events occurred. The boy promised that he would try, at which point he claimed that Ray's dad 
took him and three other kids into a classroom where they took off their clothes and were touched. When the investigator pressed him for more details, he said that he was only three when it happened. When the investigator pressed more, asking him if he was sure he couldn't remember anymore, all he could say was he was three when all of this stuff happened, and that's why he couldn't remember too much. But the investigator didn't let up, telling the boy that it was really important to know when the incidents happened. Then the boy answered again that he remembered all that he could, but the investigator kept questioning him, asking him what happened after the children took their clothes off, and he answered that they put them back on, hopped into Ray's van, and went to a meat market. They went into the meat market and went through the back entrance, and he saw a man there with red hair. And the boy was clear. No molestation took place there. He did not know why they were taken there, but insisted that nothing happened. Bob Curie's son was dropped from the prosecution witness list due to a lack of viability and statute of limitation issues. In their notes, district attorneys investigators wrote that Bob Curie's son appears to be emotionally unstable and that according to his therapist, he has intense repressed anger. Gee, I wonder why. Around the time that Ray Bucky was arrested, a parent who I've mentioned a little bit earlier, Jackie McGauley, had enrolled her two-year-old daughter at the McMartin Preschool's morning program. On her admission forms, Jackie indicated that her daughter experienced irregular bowel movements and she was shy and that she doesn't talk much. She plays mostly alone with the exception of her younger brother and a few select friends. Her daughter was at the preschool two mornings a week from September 28, 1983, up until the school was voluntarily shut down by the owners in January of 1984. It would be long after the school closed, long after the rumors of child sexual abuse began spreading like wildfire around the Manhattan Beach community, that she would take her child to Children's Institute International to be interviewed. On March 29, 1984, a summary of Jackie's daughter's interview demonstrated a similar pattern of abuse allegations. Things like yucky games, such as the tickle game and the naked movie star game. There were threats to not tell anyone that she had been vaginally penetrated, that she was tied up, that animal sacrifices were taking place that involved bunnies, turtles, a cat, a dog, and an elephant, and that bunnies were hurt by the teachers. Finally, a medical examination by the Children's Institute International conducted by Dr. Astrid Hager, who is the one who conducted the child's interview, came to the conclusion that sexual abuse had taken place and diagnosed Jackie's daughter as such. Jackie did tell police later on that her child did not ever accuse any of the McMartin teachers prior to having been sent to Children's Institute International. But like many of the McMartin parents did, when they looked back on it, knowing what they knew now, they saw a range of symptoms that were signs of child molestation. She just didn't know it at the time. Things Jackie described like nightmares, not liking school, asthma, and a withdrawn nature. Jackie said she hates school. She had asthma so bad that the doctors couldn't believe it. They said it couldn't be asthma. 
her daughter's inability to speak at the time she was in school, when she was two years and four months old, was now viewed as a symptom of child abuse. Remember, she put on her enrollment papers that her daughter didn't talk much. This before her daughter had spent even one day at the school. Jackie said she wouldn't talk. She wouldn't talk about anything. But suddenly, like a miracle had taken place, her daughter became super talkative when taken to the Children's Institute International. Her mom recalling, all of a sudden she knew how to talk in sentences. She wouldn't let me out of her sight because she had been told that I would die if she ever said anything. And like other parents, as time passed, Jackie's allegations, made based on things her daughter was supposedly telling her, became increasingly strange as well. On July 11, 1984, Jackie reported to investigators that her daughter said Ray brought her into a restroom located on the beach and that she saw bunnies at a YMCA in a neighboring community. On July 19th, Jackie reported that someone was attempting to harass her into stopping her from speaking out about the abuse going on at the preschool by way of the following incidents, that someone used her credit card without her authorization at a horse racing track, that some speakers were stolen from her car, and that she was receiving hang-up calls, even though she had changed her phone number. These occurrences are what led Jackie to believe that she was being harassed about the information she was providing to investigators about the child abuse accusations at the McMartin Preschool. On July 23rd, Jackie told the district attorney's investigators that her daughter had witnessed Ray with blood on his face and wearing a robe that looked like a curtain. Her daughter told her that eggs were placed on her boobs and on her vagina while she was at school. Her daughter also told her that there were four Rays, Mr. Ray and Old Ray. Jackie said her daughter reported to her that she was taken by one of the Rays to their own home where he forced her to touch her cat. Then one of the Rays took the cat to the school where he killed it. Jackie's daughter also said Ray poked the eyes out of the kittens and killed a bird, and her daughter also saw a child being burned at the park. Two days later, on July 25th, Jackie reported that her daughter had been taken to a park and to a cemetery in a nearby city. Jackie investigated these claims on her own, visiting the mortuary's office, and it's there where she did confirm that she saw what her daughter described as a great regulation clock. Yeah, the toddler's mom confirmed these details at the mortuary, that her daughter said that Ray took her there, and that the people inside were wearing fire uniforms, and that there was a red truck and ghosts, too. On July 27th, Jackie was making claims that she had been having problems with a former boyfriend who had been abusive towards her during their relationship, and that he made accusations against her of making threats towards him. By the middle of the next month, in August, Jackie contacted Children's Institute International to report to them that her former boyfriend may have molested or pornographically photographed her children. She asserted that this molestation began in May of 1984, just after she and her husband split, and there was a period of about one month when she and her children lived with the ex-boyfriend. Jackie's suspicions were heightened after she noticed her daughter's vaginal area was red, 
and after she found disturbing images of child abuse in her boyfriend's possessions. But the timing of the vaginal redness, which we talked about a little bit earlier, if we know we've had toddlers or been in the care of toddlers, especially during potty training, it's not necessarily indicative of child abuse, but the timing didn't really coincide with the time that she was living with this ex-boyfriend. Jackie also told Key McFarlane that her children had visited their father over the weekend and that when they returned home, her daughter cried while using the bathroom and that she, at that time, observed redness and inflammation around her daughter's vaginal area. If you remember back, Judy Johnson also included her ex-husband in her plethora of molestation claims that she made as well, although evidence of such had never materialized. Like lots of things in this case, actually. Now, dreamers, pay close attention to the actions of the parents in the following allegations. Jackie said that images of child abuse were contained and hidden amongst a collection of adult pornographic materials in a box of magazines that were stored in her garage. She told Key McFarlane that one of the magazines was called Lolly Tots. Gross, right? Well, Jackie said that some of the photos involved images of bestiality. But these materials weren't found and reported until two months after the boyfriend moved out. So what does Jackie do? Instead of calling police, she turned these images of child abuse, supposed child abuse, over to Bob Curie for supposed safekeeping. Bob then turned around and contacted Key McFarlane and told her that he had the pictures. Key, in one of the few things that she actually did properly, advised Bob to contact the Manhattan Beach Police Department. But Bob, of course, he refused to do so. Why, you ask? Because he said that at least four Manhattan Beach police officers were involved in the McMartin preschool porn ring. Okay, Bob. In a videotaped interview with Key McFarlane, who was using anatomically correct dolls, Jackie's daughter said that the boyfriend had touched her on her pee-pee and on her boobies. Remember, in a previous medical examination back in March of 1984, the examining doctor had noted vaginal trauma consistent with sexual abuse. Based on Jackie's accusations, police searched the boyfriend's car, office, and apartment, but found no evidence of images of child abuse anywhere. Jackie got the materials that she had turned over to Bob Curry back from him and then handed them over to the Hermosa Beach Police Department a week later. And if I had to guess... I would assume that she went to a different department because of Bob's allegations that the Manhattan Beach Police Department were in cahoots with the porn ring. Police determined that the fingerprints on the materials matched her boyfriend's, but it also stated that there is no evidence of the materials including juveniles or any kind of inappropriate photos of minors. On August 20th, 1984, Jackie told the district attorney's investigators that her daughter had pointed out another preschool in the area that she claimed to have been taken to. Her daughter began telling her about devils and a good lady dressed in white. Jackie then described her daughter as having grown fearful when talking about going to a cemetery 
where everyone was dressed in red, as well as seeing a pig stuck in a sandy park with blue dead people and cut up bodies. Fast forward to May 20th, 1985. Jackie told a Los Angeles County Sheriff's investigator that her daughter had been reported being molested on another occasion. This time, she said her daughter told her that she was being abused by a teacher at the Rich Stone Center, a preschool for sexually abused children that had been recommended by the Children's Institute International. The owners of that school had become deeply involved in the McMartin preschool case. The wife was a therapist for many of the alleged victims, and her husband was an attorney representing several of the parents in their lawsuits against the McMartin preschool. This abuse took place almost a year prior to Jackie making the report, recalling that it took place on a Wednesday. Her daughter told her that she didn't want to go to school, that they hurt her, and they hurt the bottoms of her feet. She said the teachers had placed sticks inside her rear end and that one of the teachers left her on a boat in a swimming pool and then took her to a local car wash. The reason why Jackie waited a year to make this report? Because she claimed that her daughter had been saying these things all along, but none of them made any sense until some of the things that she'd been saying that very morning. She also told them that she didn't want to say anything until her daughter would be willing to tell what happened herself. The now four-year-old would not answer the officer's question, even with the coaxing of her mother. Jackie sat her daughter on her lap and continued to try to coax her into talking, asking her to please answer the deputy's questions. Tell them how they hurt her feet, but she would not speak. She asked her daughter to show how they abused her to the deputy. Her daughter began to pinch and poke at the bottoms of her feet, still without saying a word. Both the deputy and the mom pressed the girl, asking her who had hurt her. And finally she answered, Ray Bucky and another teacher. But these were not teachers at Richstone. They were teachers at McMartin Preschool. Her mom interjected at this point, pointing out that her daughter had been through a lot and gets confused. Once Jackie's daughter became a little more relaxed, she finally spoke up some more. She said that there were four other children who she didn't know while she was being abused. Jackie's older son also attended the school, but he was adamant that he nor his sister were ever abused. Jackie told the deputy that she had been observing her daughter's classes at Richstone, but after a new teacher began working there, visits were no longer permitted. Following that, her daughter only attended classes there three or four more times, and it was in those three or four times that all of these allegations happened at Richstone. During this interview, the four-year-old never said the name of the teacher at Richstone. The report was handed over to the Hermosa Beach Police Department, and whatever happened after that, if anything, is unknown. Let's talk about the media for a little bit. February marked the beginning of Sweeps Month in television. You guys remember Sweeps, that period when networks would try to spike their viewership with special shows, guest stars, stuff like that. Well, that also included sensational stuff too. It was a fierce battle for the most viewers and advertising revenue. And it was on February 3rd, 1984, that KABC reporter Wayne Satz 
dropped the original Nancy Grace bombshell tonight when he stunned television viewers with the news that more than 60 children interviewed at Children's Institute International reported to investigators that he or she had been keeping a grotesque secret of being sexually abused and made to appear in pornographic films while in the care of the McMartin Preschool, and that they had been forced to witness the mutilation and killing of animals to frighten them into silence. This one exclusive television news report would set off a firestorm of battles for television news ratings that would last for the next six years, as the defendants charged in the McMartin case were facing criminal trials. The coverage on television and in the newspapers and magazines, both locally in Southern California and nationally, as the sensational case spread across the country, was blatantly one-sided and demonstrably and wholly extraordinary in its sensationalism. Kia McFarlane was lauded as a renowned expert in child abuse who had adeptly uncovered the children's horrific secrets of sex abuse. Charges that nobody bothered to challenge, particularly these journalists reporting on this stuff. They failed to act within the confines of responsible journalism by taking the official pronouncements by therapists and prosecutors to task or researching the particulars in the case in a manner that they should have as professional journalists. And as a result of the media's wanton disregard for journalistic integrity, Everyone in this case and everyone watching were hit with an onslaught of mass hysteria. And these false and absurd allegations of child abuse engrossed the nation. I have told you guys in great details many of the allegations the parents have made on behalf of their children. Absurd is an accurate way of describing this entire fiasco. It is truly mind-boggling to think how many people not only went along with what was being said as fact, but also how many parents came forward with their own recitations of their children's purported claims as well. It was nothing short of hysteria, complete and total madness, all thanks to Judy Johnson. Sadly, a woman who struggled terribly with mental illness compounded with substance abuse led to all of this. I'm going to end this episode, The Tale of the McMartin Preschool, here. In part two, we are going to delve into the trials of Raymond Bucky and Peggy McMartin Bucky and how those played out. We're going to take a good look at Key McFarlane and her work with the McMartin children. And we're going to talk more about the tunnels and we'll talk about the fallout. All of that will be available for you in the next couple days, so you won't have to wait too long for the conclusion of this story. Please join the California Dreaming discussion page, where we post about cases we cover, as well as all other topics involving true crime. You can also follow us on Twitter, at CaliforniaPod, and on Instagram, at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And if you would like to help support this show, there are a number of ways you can do so. California Dreaming has created a Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to all of the bonus content that's already up 
and there is typically one bonus episode per month. And this month, there will be a second bonus episode if you choose the $5 and above tier. California Dreaming has also a PayPal if you would like to make a one-off donation to help with the creation of this podcast. Our email there is californiapod at yahoo.com. K-I-L-L-A-F-O-R-N-I-A-P-O-D at Yahoo. You can also help if you listen on Apple Podcasts by leaving a five-star review, or you can visit the merchandise store where you can get California Dreaming stuff from TeePublic. You can find that link at www.orbitaljigsaw.com and click on the store link. California Dreaming is presented to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Have you had a chance to come visit our newly redesigned website? It's super pretty, and you can find me and all of our other shows that have partnered with the network, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, 41 Owned, Film Roast, Vox Arcana, and The Podians. A new show which is geared towards podcast hosts and aspiring hosts, giving you all the ins and outs of the podcasting world. The Podians also has a Facebook page, so search for that and request to join. Dreamers, keep your eyes on your feed. The next part of this crazy story will be out as soon as I can get it all pieced together. Thank you for listening, and I will see you in a couple of days. Until then, sweet dreams. when you see a large group of people dressed in the exact same outfit? Usually. Al, are you strangely intrigued by the idea of wearing linen to appease alien overlords? Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself sucked in by documentaries about cults from the 70s? Absolutely. Do you like your podcasts with wild but educated speculation? If you've answered yes to any of these questions, check out Can We Cult? Hosted by me, Allie. And me, Megan. We're two cheap wine aficionados slash best friends living in Portland, Oregon. Sure, we have some formal training and we do work in social services, but we got our real knowledge about cults from documentaries, books, Reddit threads, and again, wild speculation. Every Thursday, a new episode full of scary, sad, and hilarious stories with a whole lot of heart is released. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Overcast, as well as on all social media platforms at Can We Cult. Join Join us, won't you? you? Hello, and welcome to a promo for Blood on the Rocks, a podcast on all things creepy, morbid, or otherwise dark. I'm your host, Axel Taylor. Join me and various guest hosts as we cover a whole load of subjects. We'll show you the world of serial killers, accidents, hauntings, black metal, and more. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and all those other fancy podcast platforms. Alcohol and funny content may vary.